0: His life for absolutely sure, because it doesn't lie. Men can lie, but riches don't. And if a house has fallen through, when you see a house falling through, a family messed up, what do you know? You should know something. The father has been AWOL. The father has been slothful, because it's through much slothfulness that the building decayeth, And it's through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. It's a church, it's a nation, it's a state. Verses 16 and 17, were are about a nation. And because of that, we have verse 18. Let's go to verse 19. A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry. But money answereth all things. I believe verse 19 relates to verses 16 and 17 as well. Those paragraph marks that some editor of your Bible stuck in there don't mean a thing to me. God didn't give them and they're only just a few decades old, those paragraph marks are so disruptive sometimes when you're reading the Bible. Let's just read it the way God gave it to us. He didn't even give us verse numbers or chapter numbers. These words run together because it's a small pamphlet on philosophy. And what does verse 19 mean? A feast is made for laughter. Yes, that's obvious. We, we believe that. How does it fit the context of what we've just learned? That's what... Kings that are given to excess and luxurious, luxurious living give themselves to feasting. A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry. But verses 16 and 17 were criticizing the excessive use of wine and the excessive eating of food, and the early eating of food. It was criticizing those things. This is not a verse without carrying a weighty lesson. That's one of the rules for studying Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He's not just giving you something you already know. He's giving you wisdom. We already know a feast is made for laughter. When you go to a feast, it's a time for mirth. Isn't that why we called it a feast of mirth? A feast for mirth? A feast to the Lord for mirth? A feast of mirth to the Lord? That's, a feast is made for a time of gladness. Gladness results in laughter. We understand that one. Wine maketh merry. That is so elementary. God gave wine to cheer the heart of man. But, in distinction of those two things, money answereth all things. Here is, this, these words, money answereth all things, cannot contradict the rest of the Bible that warn us about the danger of money. Cannot. So that's another constraint on how we interpret that 19th verse. Cannot. The love of money is the root of all evil. That's the excessive love of money. That's the ambition to be wealthy and not to give it away. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6. God told the rich that had lots of money in the same chapter... That as long as they were willing to distribute and ready to communicate, that was good enough. That they were laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. It's your attitude toward money. But what if you're a king and you're in a position of authority where they have entrusted you with the affairs of state and you're giving yourself to luxurious eating and pleasure... You're giving yourself to feasting, and you're laughing at your feasts. You're giving yourself to wine, and wine makes your heart merry. But money answereth all things. Do you know what the best measure of a king is? What does the national budget look like? Now do you get verse 19. But money answereth all things. A king that lives the life of luxury and looks like a king because he's wearing his fancy robes and pouring golden goblets of the most expensive liquors in the land. That isn't the evidence of a successful, prosperous nation. The evidence of a successful, prosperous nation is sound economic policies resulting in economic prosperity. But money answereth all things. A feast doesn't answer anything. If a king has a feast, it doesn't provide anything for the nation. If a king drinks wine and is merry, it doesn't provide for the nation. But money answereth all things. If he would cut back on his eating and his drinking, and sit down with his financial advisors, and make better investments for the country and avoid debts, and get more tribute out of their tributaries, and have better tax policies, etc., etc., like Rehoboam should have had, There can be great prosperity, and that is a sense that money answereth all things. It is the better measure of a man than is feasting and drinking and enjoying the good life. Because you can sit with someone and they can tip a cup easily doesn't mean that they're successful. Their balance sheet tells you whether they're successful or not. And a nation is, listen, this nation, are we given to luxurious eating and drinking all the time in this country? All the time. Are we prosperous? If we had to liquidate today and pay off all our debts as a nation, what would we have left? Your toothbrush. And I'd have to come and use it. We have a balance sheet that is totally wrecked. But money answereth all things. You want to measure a man? It's not luxurious living. It's not playful living. It's not pleasure craziness. It's money. It's economic prosperity. Do you, do you understand that Solomon taught this and Rehoboam blew it? Yep. That is how we understand verse 19 of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. It is not a contradiction to anything taught elsewhere in the Bible. Money doesn't answer all things in many ways, but money answers many things in for heads of state as to how they're executing their office. If they're eating and drinking too much, there will be financial trouble because they are setting a terrible example at to the top. They are intoxicated so they can't do their job as well as they should, and they are wasting treasury dollars that should be used elsewhere. But a king that puts away the eating, the drinking, and the playing in order to execute the affairs of state as well as he can Money answereth all things. Money is what benefits a populace. Why do we have a government? We have a government to protect our stuff, to protect our lives, and to protect our livelihood. So when a king is doing that well, you're getting ahead. When you're not getting ahead, then there's a problem at the top that's extending all the way down through the economy. And it often goes back to verses 16 and 17. They're leading a life of luxury or they're promoting a life of luxury when the nation can't really afford it. You know, do you all, do you all understand that while there is such a thing as supply-side economics, which means that when you reduce taxes, there is an increase in revenue to the government, there is also the need for this country to cut back on its expenses and to raise taxes. Right. Because until we raise taxes, no one understands what it costs to do the things that we're doing. But if we paid for them on a current basis, people would all of a sudden understand that the government can't just throw $200 billion checks at problems because the government has no money. No government has money. But money answereth all things in comparison to the problems of excess in a government. It applies right down to our families. You know, is, is, uh, is, living too high, is living in a subdivision that you can't really afford, in a house that you can't really afford, driving cars you can't really afford, sending your children to schools you can't really afford, buying name brands that they can't really afford, is that the sign of a prosperous family and a wise man? Or does a wise man have one that has a balance sheet that's going to be to the profit of those children in the years to come? money answereth all things. Money's is the better measure. Remember, Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 16, strong men retain riches. Strong men retain riches because they have the strength to go earn them. They have the strength to bring it home and save it and not spend it all. 16 and 17 are talking about those that spend it. 19 is talking about those that save it. And so they have it. And the treasury grows and the populace benefits. And so we come to verse 20. And verse 20 says, curse not the king. So after reading verses 16, 17, 18, and 19, you realize we have a, and I'm not saying this about our president or president-elect. I'm talking in theory. So you get to verse 20 and you're thinking to yourself, our king lives extravagantly. He's been slothful and our nation is falling apart. They give themselves to feasting and wine, and the balance sheet of our country is in terrible condition. Do you know what the temptation is? To unload from here through here. And so we have verse 20. And brethren, let's humble ourselves before verse 20. Amen. Amen. Curse not the president-elect. No, not in thy thought. And curse not the vice president-elect in thy bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. Oh, brethren, here's a warning to us. Let's guard our hearts and our tongues. And you know where it starts? It starts right here in our heart. Curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. Wives are not to curse their husbands. Children are not to curse their parents. If a child cursed their parents, what was to happen to them in the Old Testament? Stone them to death. Wives are to reverence their husbands and to call them lord you are not to curse the king to curse the king is to revile him and put a damn and to damn him either in the name of god or in in your own name we do not do that if a king is doing something against the word of god we point that out from the word of god if it is necessary to point it out to somebody who may not know that he's doing something against the word of god but that is so seldom but we don't curse the king or despise him for what he's doing He's going to answer to God. That's why the Bible tells us, Be not many masters, knowing ye shall receive the greater condemnation. Curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. When a king is less than he should be, like this context describes, there's a temptation to curse him. But do you know what the Bible says? Thou shalt not curse the rulers of thy people. Thou shalt not revile the gods. Because a king or a ruler or a judge, even in Israel in the days of Moses, was called a god with a little g. Thou shalt not revile the gods. That doesn't mean you couldn't make fun of Dagon. That doesn't mean you couldn't make fun of Baal. Those are gods with a little g. The god with a little g in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight 28 is the ruler of the people. Go read the verse. Right. They're called gods for a reason because they're the closest thing to God on earth. Do you know what you're, we're able to know about the, the, the elementary aspects of God are that he has eternal power and a Godhead. Right. And we can learn that from a real king. Curse not the king, know not in thy thoughts. The Bible's full of warnings about this. You know that 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude chapter 1 warn us about speaking evil of dignities. And we start with guarding our hearts. Right. You know, you may see a person's picture. You may read about some of his policies. You may read some of his cabinet choices. You may read about his past. And you may want to curse him in your heart. God picked that man. The American electorate didn't pick that man. God picked that man. How do you think he would have survived the nine months in his mother's womb unless God wanted him in that office? Didn't you hear Romans chapter 13 today? The powers that be are ordained of God. God raises up those men. God raises up one king and puts down another king. God does it. Promotion doesn't come from the east, the west, the north, the south. It doesn't come from the Democratic Party. It comes from the Lord. God raises up all kinds of men. And so we don't curse the king. No, not in our thoughts. And we don't meddle with them that are given to change, that want to ridicule or rail on government. We do not meddle with them because the calamity of those that talk about change and those that meddle with them is coming soon on both of them. That's Proverbs twenty-four, twenty-one, and 22. We are and should be at all times President-elect Obama's best friends, and most loyal supporters as in the office that he holds. If he goes contrary to the word of God, we will resist him in word and deed on that point, but not otherwise. The terminology is obviously, we're talking about the civil authority of a monarch because it says king. But children shouldn't curse their parents either. And children, every time your parents tell you to do something that you don't want to do and tell you you can't do something that you want to do, you have a choice when you walk away from them. You can curse them in your heart and bring God's damnation on your soul, or you can thank God that you have parents that care about you and are trying to make rules for your happiness and your success. Do all of you children hear me? You have a choice whenever you turn away from your parents when they have denied something you want to do or told you to do something you don't want to do. You have a choice. And you better make the choice this verse is talking about. Don't you curse your parents in your heart. Because there's a God in heaven that sees every thought and intent of your heart, and you will be judged for it. God gave you your parents. Out of 6.7 billion people on planet Earth, He gave you your parents. God gave you your parents. You are no accident. You were fearfully and wonderfully made according to the book of God. Every member that you have, the color of your hair, the shape of your face, your height, weight, intelligence, IQ, physical abilities, coordination, heart size, and your body, all of that was chosen by God before you were ever formed in your mother's womb. And he picked that mother and he picked that father and put them together to make you. Don't you curse. You're just as bad off if your parents are cursing the president, his cabinet, Congress, the Supreme Court, the governor of South Carolina, or any other ruler that we have. Brethren, let's practice this because the Bible says it. If we're not going to practice this, then let's not practice any of it. Let's just close up, go home. NFL's getting cranked up. We can watch a couple of pregame shows and really get into the, the two or three games that they're going to play today. If we're not going to keep it all. You know, the Lord's trying us right now. You know, we've got a socialist as a president. You know what? I just may become an advocate for certain practices of socialism as long as they put more money in your pockets. You know, I'm looking for as soon as he gets in office, he's going to give you another stimulus check, and we're going to cheer if it's bigger than the last one. Even, even if we don't believe in stimulus checks. We're going to be thankful to God of heaven sent some stimulus checks. Right. You know, if I was a Jew in Babylon, I wouldn't exactly be in favor of the government spending money to build a temple for the God of the Israelites back in Jerusalem. Because if he's going to do it for them, then he might build a temple for every pagan god in every capital city of every nation that they conquered. I could get all upset about that, and I could sit down with libertarian economic philosophy and theory and say that that's bad. But boy, as a Jew, I sure am going to celebrate. Thank you, King. Say, right. Do you want to give any more? And they went and built the house of the Lord. Never thought you'd hear me say anything like that? Listen, if if God's given us a socialistic president, maybe that's what we need to survive for the next 50 years. Us, our children, and our children's children. Right. You know, maybe maybe we've got a socialist president that doesn't want to be the international police officer for the whole world and involve us in conflicts all around the world that could take our sons away. Right. There's wise mothers in this congregation that are mothers in Zion that kind of like the president that we have right now because he hasn't grown up thinking about war every day of his life because war is the most stupid thing a nation can ever do. It's the most wasteful, destructive thing you can ever do. Why not save ourselves the time? Let's just go out and take up one quarter of the assets of America and just burn them up in a big bonfire. That's what a war does. Totally worthless, stupid to go into a war, unless there's a cause. But we don't know what's coming. So the point here, all of that is to say, curse not the king. No, not in my thought. Right. So we first of all start right here. And I'm going, to say, I'm going to think good thoughts. I'm going to think happy thoughts about President-elect Obama, about Vice-President-elect Biden. We're going to think good thoughts because the Bible wants us to. Right. It's very hard for me to say what I'm saying to you. But you know what? The Bible tells me to do it and I don't care how hard it is. It's hard for me to push away the second pizza too. But we need to do both because the Lord tells us to curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. The rich are subordinate rulers underneath the king, magistrates, princes, landlords, business owners, capitalists, the rich, successful men who influence your life, county council, city council, Supreme Court, judges, magistrates. Curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. You do not have a privilege with your wife when you are alone to run down the president-elect of the United States or the president of the United States or a past president of the United States. We should not tell jokes about President Bill Clinton. What President Bill Clinton did was wrong. Trying to cover what he did was wrong was was more wrong than what he did that was wrong. If he had come clean with what he did wrong, the whole nation would have forgiven him and no one would ever talk about it again. But we shouldn't tell jokes about government like that. Listen, if you were ever to meet Bill Clinton, he's got more brain power than you could even describe on a piece of paper with a pencil and a calculator. He could eat you alive and spit you out for breakfast in two minutes flat. He could walk into a room and you'd be totally awed by his presence. President Bill Clinton was raised up a very special man. I don't care where he came from. I don't care if he lived in a house trailer in Arkansas. None of that matters. Just go read a little bit about the man. Mm -hmm. He was brilliant. He was a very powerful man. God put him in that office. We don't make jokes about the men that God puts in office. The minute, the minute that we allow a thought in our hearts about the president-elect that we have, or our vice president, supreme court, congressman, whatever, The minute we allow that, that what we're saying, our wives are justified to have those kind of thoughts about us. Our children are justified to have those kinds of thoughts about both parents. Our children can go sit in their bedroom and hate us and curse us in their thoughts because we're doing it toward the one God put over us. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot at any one of those five levels. And if you wonder why it's happening to you, with those underneath you, then I wonder if you've been doing it in your heart or your voice about the one we have in Washington, D.C., or Columbia, South Carolina, or Greenville. I want those under my authority to respect me, to overlook the errors that I make, to forgive my personal faults, and to practice the Bible toward me. And I know that the best way to get that is to practice the Bible toward the ones that God put over me. Because whatsoever man soweth that shall he also reap. And what goes around comes around. Where was that taught in the Bible? Oh, that was in Ecclesiastes 2. Curse not the king. No, not my thought. Let's start with our hearts. Curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. Don't even let it be with your wife. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. And I hope you understand Proverbs and Ecclesiastes by now. There's no bird, there's no feathers, and there's no wings in verse 20 of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. That is a metaphor. A metaphor is a word picture, that somehow your seditious thinking, your seditious talking is going to get out and it's going to cost you. You are guilty of sedition and or treason, and it's going to come back to bite you. And it could be through your own children, through your wife, because you want to talk against those in authority when you don't have a clue about what they have to face every day. Who would want their job? How would you like to lead these 300 million people? You know, men say, there's little idioms in in the English language, hedges have ears. The walls will speak. Or kings have long ears. All three expressions come from the fact that somehow, when you think seditious and treasonous thoughts against authority, it's going to get out. It's going to get out and it's going to bite you. So here... The wise man is telling us he uses a bird instead. Some bird's going to be sitting there in the windowsill, and he's going to pick up your thought, or he's going to pick up the words that you say to your wife, and he's going to fly over to the king and tell the king, you've got a treasonous man over in the little town of Greenville. You need to send the secret service and take care of him. But you know, the God of heaven knows it all. And that's the one we want to please the most. Do you know what we've just learned? We have just learned the importance of speech for the profit and pleasure of our souls in this life. We have just learned the proper attitude toward work in verse 15, and school. You should be excited about going to school on Monday morning. You should be excited about going to work. We have just learned that temperance in eating and drinking is important for a king, and if it's important for a king, it's important for us as well. In any position of authority we have, slothfulness will cause any house to fall apart, including your family. A child left to himself will bring his mother to shame. You, you give up and don't do, there's always something to do. Mothers, there's always a minute that you can take with your children to teach them righteousness. You let them alone for a day, you let them alone for another day. A child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Then the house falleth through, the family tree falls apart, the nation falls apart, a church falls apart, the state, a, company, a department, if you're not doing your job. So slothfulness is warned against, especially stemming from luxurious and playful living. Verse 19, feasts have their place and wine has their place and their purposes and their nature, but money answereth all things. A balance sheet is a better description of character and a better description of the state of a nation than how fancy and luxurious the king might be living. And then verse 20, to sum it all up before we go on to a new point when we come back, to sum it all up, no matter what your king is doing, don't curse him. No, not even in your thought. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, knows the thoughts and intent of your heart. I will tell you something. You, are, you can think and curse President-elect Obama all you want. You are never going to touch his life in the least degree. Right. But if you will honor and respect him for the office God has given him over our nation, and you will ask God to teach him and chasten him if need be, you will have the greatest influence in his life you possibly could have. And that is not cursing him, that is praying for him, and we are going to pray for him. And we're not going to speak about bosses, masters, owners, board of directors, disrespectfully. That is very hard not to do. Because we as Americans have a lip problem. We've had a lip problem since we wrote our king in England and told him, To take a long walk on a short pier out of London, England. That we were going to do our own thing in America. And Americans have always had a lip problem about those in authority. And we as Christians should get rid of that lip problem and humble ourselves and not even say those things to our wives. Not about bosses. If a boss is doing something against the Word of God, and it need be told to your wife who doesn't even know that he's doing something against the Word of God, but if she happens to find out that he's doing something against the Word of God, then yes, you have the John the Baptist privilege of sitting down and showing your wife that he's doing something against the Word of God, but none of you are ever going to be in that situation. The situation you're going to be in is to come home and rail on your boss for some reason because he didn't do things the way you wanted him to do them. And so let's fulfill this verse. Those are things that we have just learned for the profit and pleasure of our souls in this world. The Lord, our Father, has sent us a book of wisdom to tell us that while life is vain and vexing under the sun, life can also be full of profit and pleasure if we'll do things his way. If you learn to pray for our president, you will have a much better disposition about the affairs of our nation than if you just are angry and curse him every time you see his picture or read about something he's done, because he's going to start making decisions, and you're going to start seeing the consequences. Your whole life can be different. If you're temperate, you have a right attitude toward work and school. You guard your tongue. You don't curse anyone in authority over you. You recognize that slothfulness is what costs men, and so you get diligent and you put yourself to work, rather than put yourself to cursing. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.